Okay, Tampax Tool, I'm gonna give it to you right up your ass. All this man-hating shit for a start? Oh, she criticized me. I called her a man-hater. I know what you want from me. You just want a youthful pussy transfusion. Preferably one you can take home to show the menfolk what a beautiful post you got to piss on. Jeans pressed, cowboy boots. Is that a uniform for individuals, is it? I want a podcast. <laughs> God, this is really challenging your accent. Uh, your accent game, Griffin, this miniseries. It is. I also feel like it's, I mean, she's, she spends some of the movie in a zone between British and Australian. Is that fair to say? I would say that Kate Winslet is always in a zone when yes. she's doing an accent. Would you yes. agree? Right. That's As, why I love her. I'm right, like, but she's I, look, always kind of walking a line. I'm not great at accents, period. Australian accent, maybe the one I struggle with the most. This is hard because I'm like, but am I doing an impression of Kate Winslet's Australian accent or am I just doing my Australian? Don't a lot of Australians kind of spend their lives in a zone between British and Australian? Very am I immediately the, alienating the Australian? No. Kyle, say it. I'm say with it. you. Say it. I'm with I And like, this is the thing. I don't want to alienate our Aussie listeners. And I know that's a slightly, that's a sort of whatever. Uh, unfair opinion maybe of an English but like certainly it's like we're all walking lines with our English language accents I suppose right Australian Canadian British I don't know yeah. uh, it's just funny that Winslet has done so many accents over the years and never been a good accent person, right? Wait, no, I, I disagree. I think she's okay, great in okay. it. I mean, I don't know. Well, no, I can't I speak love, to the no, verisimilitude. No, no, we're, I, look, this is, I think this is the point David's making. She is an actor who I almost always loved, even if I objectively think her accent work is iffy. Let me throw some accents out. I'm going to yeah. throw some out, okay? So there's <laughs> The Life of David Gale. That was, a, to me, a famous one. Still never seen uh, I, right. I know no one's no one remembers the life of David Gale, but she's doing a, an American accent in that movie that I remember being very crisp. Uh, often her American accent is fine, like you know, Eternal Sunshine or something. I, I think. Look, I think Eternal Sunshine's a masterpiece. I think that's probably her best performance. I would have given her the Oscar that year. I do think her American accent in that movie is overly crisp. She does have British actor doing American. Everything yeah, is just too sure. precise, kind of thing. It doesn't even necessarily fit for the character. But this is my exact point. She is one of those actors where she fucking overcomes it. Steve Jobs, another example of like that Steve Jobs. All over the place. That's a great performance. But I don't need an accent to be real. I don't need. I agree. I agree. This is we what, all this agree. Is, <laughs> this is what's fascinating about her: is there are people whose accents are bad in a way that is distracting and takes away from it, and she is always able to overcome perhaps the lack of technical it accuracy of, it's, in her. It's an old Hollywood thing. She's yes. doing a voice, and yeah. you're like, "That's fine." The reader. She did an accent in the reader. I right. think the accent's good in the reader, but it's a crappy performance in a crappy movie. She she also did Australian in The Dressmaker, which the is dressmaker, a very right. wild movie. She did and it is, opposite of Hemsworth to a Hemsworth's face. And is kind yeah. of a, a campion adjacent, right? I mean, that movie shares a lot of campion collaborators. Yeah, I Jocelyn mean, Morehouse Australian. directed. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, yeah, is that Winslet's rule? She's like, if I'm going Australian, the movie's going to be completely bananas because that movie is bananas. I feel like there's another one. I'm forgetting now. Is there there is a is there another Winslet accent I'm not thinking of? Um, get, what's her Titanic accent? That's sort of that mid Atlantic kind of accent. Yeah, yeah. her Titanic yeah. accent is beyond reproach. Come oh, on, I now. love it. I love it. But she's playing in that. She's playing kind of like you know a, a hoity-toity rich 
So it's sort of like that, yeah. That, but but I, I, we all agree she is one of these actors who kind of defies logic where you never, ever can ding her for the accent. You can be like, yeah, of course, I mean, the accent isn't great, but it like never subtracts from the performance at all. And then there are things like Mary Town where people are like, she kind of nailed a tricky accent. She really did a good job with that accent. That's right. the people one are I was like, thinking no of. No one fucking gets that one right. And she got it right. You know, I would even venture to say that if there's something that's slightly exaggerated or unexpected about where she lands with the accent, it's in pursuit of character. Even that mm-hmm. crispness to her American accent in Eternal Sunshine, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of like, you know, she can be curt. So why not? Yeah, yeah. But maybe I'm reverse engineering. No, I <laughs> think no, it, it I gets... Think... It's weird. As you said, David, movie star shit where you're just like, Sometimes the it, it is bizarre and illogical which things matter more or less than other things in a performance, which things overpower, you know? But and enough about Hasekuchi. <laughs> I mean, that movie is like an incredible you could sort if I ever had to teach acting at any sort of school, I would just screen House of Gucci every single week and just dissect the different types of screen performances and approaches to. Um Look, let's dive into it because I think have Wonder never... Wheel. She's got a terrible accent, oh, in there, but no well, one wants her. No one escaped alive. And and romance yes, and yes. cigarettes. She's doing a similar sort of thing. Uh, right, right. Maybe full Brooklyn. She should never go. I guess. Yeah. I guess that's her one. You know, which is often true. You know, for many this actors. Is, this struggled. is what I'm realizing. This is only the second. No, third Winslet. I'm sorry. Of course, third Winslet. We've done Titanic and Sense and yeah. Sensibility and Holy Smokes. Right. We've done like her first two Oscar nominations. And then maybe her f- her first big whiff in certain ways. This is her first post-Titanic performance. Hideous Kinky, she filmed pre-Titanic. Okay. So this is her first, like, I'm done with Titanic. This is the project I'm picking. That It's pretty This and Hideous Kinky back-to-back yeah. are fascinating. And I feel like we're going to spend a lot of time talking about wins like career shit in this episode. More than we did in Titanic or Sense and Sensibility. But right. But this is a podcast about filmographies. Directors, but also actors. Sure, we can talk about Kate Winslet's filmography here. Uh, it, but it's primarily about directors who experience uh, a massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce. Baby, I'm Griffin, by the way. I'm David. You're getting fast. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't even throw I saw, you off. I, I saw you. You yeah, saw exactly. it coming. You were trying to do it different, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a mini-series on the films of uh, Jane Campion. We, we've been going camping. Uh, it's called The Podcastiano. That's right. <laughs> Another accent being tested for me on this mini-series. And today we're talking about uh, Holy Smoke. And uh, here's my two-word review of this movie. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking thing. Uh, yes. And introduce our guest. Our guest today, of course, from the New York Times and author of the book that has just come out or is about to come out? It's about to come out when this drops. In mere days, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max, Fury Road, Kyle Buchanan, long overdue. Thank you for coming on the podcast for the first I'm time. I'm so excited to finally be here. Uh, thanks for, for being here, Kyle. I miss you. We were just talking festivals. We're, I know. You know we're always crossing paths at the fests. Yeah. You're like, it's like I go to summer or winter camp in the case of Sundance every year. Mm-hmm. And David is my festival buddy that I see. Aww. Yeah, it is. It is nice. It's nice to wait in line and then go to the Uncut Gems party. And yeah. Then it's too loud and I complain. And Kyle <laughs> tells me, stop being such a stick in the mud uh, or whatever. 
Uh, that's usually or, the or dynamic. Or eating Eccles pizza at Sundance while we're waiting in line for the next big movie. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. I love all that. I love the... Uh, Me too. It's yeah. fun. It's, so you it's, guys, it's like summer camp, like you said. It's movie camp. Yeah. You guys are FFFs? Film festival friends? I was going to say fest friends forever. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yes, <laughs> we are. Um, Kyle, Mad Max, of course, is a movie we've covered on this podcast and that we've talked mm-hmm. about was sort of like intrinsically tied to the genesis of this podcast and figuring out what this podcast was. And I feel like uh, I always cite it as less like that's the best example of an entirely successful blank check movie in the last 20 years. Right. Just yeah. on every metric. Uh, I mean, yeah, very much so. And and one of the most like unlikely, incredible blank check movies, you know, right. one where <laughs> it wasn't just cashing a check. It was being like completely overdrawn just to make it. Yeah, right. It's, it's right. a really crazy story. And Not it's one to, of, you know, well, no, but this is the point. I feel like a lot of the the making of the movie has been somewhat mysterious for a while. Like, I'm very grateful that you've written this book now and that's so thorough because I feel like. It, it, there was a weird cloud of mystery around it. And there's been a lot of like uh, uh, George Miller explaining meaning of things and sort of his creative intent. But like there's always been such confusion about like how the fuck did this get made? And then little things would come out like there wasn't one injury. And you're like, how did this set operate on a day to day basis? Yeah. Yeah. And the way it operated was really crazy. And, and yeah, that cloud of mystery. I mean, this is a story that stretched on for like two decades. Yeah. And a lot of the people that I got in touch with were like, how did you even know that I was involved with this? Because right. that had never come out before. It also mm, was a movie that for 15 years felt like, well, obviously that will never be made. And then once it was being made, you're like, well, obviously this is going to be a disaster. That was the this, thing. There's no way. This thing feels fucking cursed. And it's like so many movies we've covered where it's like the person refused to give it refuses to give up the idea that everyone is telling them the universe is telling them this is not going to work. And the fact that it's just such a complete triumph in every way. And it's a movie that has only continued to, I feel like, gain legacy and esteem. It's just going to like every single year increase in stature. Yeah, 5,000%. And and yeah. and it's exactly what you said, Griff. Like, I feel like I walked away from the from writing that book and hopefully the reader does too, really thinking a lot about the sort of like steely, idiosyncratic belief in yourself you've got to have to be any sort of director, especially George Miller making Mad Max and, you know, not giving up over 20 years and countless act of God obstacles that were thrown in his path. But like really anybody, you know, whether it's him or Jane Campion or any of those other sort of like, you know, wacky, unique directors from that side of the world, like they're not making conventional films. And to get conventional people to sign on to those films can be a real challenge. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the movie we're talking about today, Holy Smoke, is a uh, wildly unconventional uh, film set in Australia by someone who still has a bit of a blank check, uh, more than a bit of a blank check. Um, But Portrait of a Lady is in that weird zone of like the, you know, someone has their big Oscar breakthrough and then the next movie everyone goes like, well, this thing's just going to have fucking nominations dripping off of it. And then it like underwhelms a little bit, right? So you're sort of in that state where people are like, are they a one-off? Are they never going to have a movie that connects that hard again? Or was that movie just sort of like, you know, uh, not a filler, a rebound or whatever, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, and yeah. then this is just such a wild pivot away from 
Piano and Portrait of a Lady, which at that point are like the two movies that are maybe solidifying an American audience minds who Jane Campion is and what type of film she makes. I mean, for yeah, for a lot of people who, you know, clocked into Campion with the piano, that might as well have been her first movie. Right. So to get right. these two period dramas and then Holy Smoke is wild. I would be so curious to hear from your listeners who started chronologically with the podcast who know, okay, if you're capable of doing Sweetie, then there is a through line from that to Holy Smoke. I mean, this is yes. what I love about uh the way we structured this podcast the the gifts it ends up paying out is just like most people i think are watching sweetie having seen the piano and going how the fuck did the person who made the piano make this but if you've watched that first at least chronologically in this sort of rewatch run and then you watch piano and portrait and then you get to this you're like well this makes more sense now it is as you said, all the things you just said about Mad Max, like a wildly idiosyncratic movie made by someone with supreme confidence in their vision, despite probably a thousand external signs and warnings that like, maybe you shouldn't do this this way. Yeah, and it completely baffled so many people when they got it because you just wouldn't expect it from the person who had made Piano and Portrait of a Lady. I mean, there's so many things about this movie that I think baffled people. One is... Just the whole idea of, like, wackiness being harnessed to something thoughtful uh, is not a combo that you usually get from Hollywood. Um, And I also just think, you know, people were coming to their conclusions about who Jane Campion was, and she threw them a curveball. But she is, like, if you meet her in person, she is kind of a lighter, funnier person than you might expect if you just know her from the piano Super and all that. fucking goofy. All these special features yeah. I've been watching, commentaries I've been listening to, she's one of these people. And I find very often uh, th- the most serious-minded, sort of artistic, thoughtful, psychologically grounded filmmakers are a lot funnier than you'd think they'd be. And the people who are deathly serious and humorless are usually the people who make significantly less interesting movies the first time i ever saw jane campion in the flesh was 2014 at the Cannes film festival she was the president of the jury that year and it was at an after party for the movie fox catcher and she was dancing her ass off with channing tatum to the song i follow rivers like that was my first actual in real life impression of her And that was a good one because it's like, okay, Jane Campion is never exactly what you would expect. And I remember even even knowing that um, at the Venice Film Festival this year, not to sound very Fest Friends Forever about all this, but but I went to a party for Power of the Dog and uh, Kirsten Dunst was not there. So I was talking to Jane. I was like, are you expecting her? You think she's coming anytime soon? And Jane was like... Uh, yeah, she's just putting on her dress. I just saw her in it, and she looks amazeballs. And just <laughs> Jane Campion using the word amazeballs, you know, yeah. again, it's just something that you wouldn't expect because so many auteurs of this stripe, either they take themselves seriously or we just expect them to, and she right. doesn't. There, There is that kind of lightness and whimsy in her own sort of, like, personal bearing, uh, and you don't always get to see it in her movies, but when you do... It can be fun and unexpected. Yeah, like James Gray is makes incredibly tortured movies, and then you watch or listen to any interview with him, and he's like a Borscht Belt comedian. <laughs> you know, there are all these people like that. Yeah, I'm ref- I'm reflecting on her can now. I forgot it because that that was sort of a low key can in a way, and that it Winter Sleep one, which is like 
a, a trying film, in my opinion. Not not a bad movie, but it's you know a three hour fifteen minute Turkish drama where not like a ton happens, and it was up against some pretty like sexy movies, and it was sort of right. It was sort of a mild surprise that it won. Right? You're saying Kyle, this like, is this is the Bright Star year? No, that no, was no, the, the year, year she was the, the year she was jury, jury oh, oh, president. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Got it, got, uh, it, got it. Okay. You know, like it was up against Clouds of Sils Maria and um, uh, Mommy and uh, Goodbye to Language and Foxcatcher, obviously. And uh, what's the other? Uh, Two Days, One Night, I guess. Oh, and Mr. Turner. Yeah. I guess a lot of prior winners. Like, maybe that was one. I don't know. I don't know. It was just Isn't sort that- of a... Yeah. Didn't they give like the special jury prize split to mommy and goodbye to language? And Xavier yes. Dolan was like, fuck this shit. How dare you lump me in with Goodbar? He's Correct. fucking old. I mean, he is, he's he's older than Xavier Dolan. I'll say that. He he is, in fact, a he's little not bit wrong older on that one. Than Xavier Dolan. Kyle, you were at that can. You were like, I just I just remember Winter Sleep being sort of a everyone being like, oh, OK, you know, about, that happens about that sometimes. Win. You know, yeah, I mean, sometimes yeah. you have jury precedents where it's a strange consensus pick. Like you wouldn't have expected George Miller to pick Audiard's Deepan as the right that you was know, another palm winner. But sometimes right. it just comes down to you know, um, as the Oscars sometimes do, something that feels more consensus rather than daring. Um, yeah. You know, if right. you get the something right jury, on. then the consensus is something daring, and then sometimes you just never know. You hear all I sorts just, of stories afterward, though. I love hearing the stories whenever whenever they leak out, uh, which is sort of once in a while. But uh, I just love the idea of like, you know, the movie that is so different from what the director would be. You know, that's always fun. Like right. the sort of the Spielberg blue is the warmest color thing, which we've already brought up. The uh, right. uh, or, or um, you know, uh, Kate, well, Kate Blanchett was a weird one. She gave it to shoplifters, though. That was so cool. I, I don't know. But like, anyway, the narrative. Well, like it's, you said, I it's, think it's, it's a consensus pick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a consensus pick, not a, uh, you know, just the jury president, obviously. So and, yeah. and Campion couldn't give it to herself that year for having Dirty Dance with Channing Tatum, although <laughs> I would have, you right. know, that's modesty, that was... that's rules. But I still think. If they should have let it qualify somehow. Doesn't it feel like she could do incredible things with Channing Tatum as a leading man? Yes. I mean, now that she's in this mode with Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. Channing is one of the few leading men who is really good at interrogating his own sort of sense of masculinity. I Look, I know yeah. everyone's going to recoil from me saying this, but Same. Channing Tatum as Phil Burbank in Power of the Dog, I'd watch. And I think it actually would be good. Channing Might Tatum and Jesse Plemons as brothers, I'd buy that. I'll yeah. say this. I also think I think Channing could have pulled off the Jesse Plemons role. Oh yeah, five thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we oh, Kyle. We usually say a hundred percent on this. Show. I five thousand percent so is stepping us up. Fuck. Me and my uh, hi, my sense for exaggeration. Um, <laughs> I'll start dialing it down. No, 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 no. Keep we'll it up. Go to four thousand next Keep time. But David, mm-hmm. to to what you're saying, I think uh, Ceylon at that point in time was like a, a filmmaker who uh, had his champions and there's probably a little bit of like a conjury wanting to put a stamp on him and going like, okay, he's officially important. But also that does feel like to a smaller degree, the kind of film you can see champion watching and being like, I could never make anything like this because his movies are like so controlled, so bleak so sparse like she cannot make a movie that devoid of weirdness and of details you know i mean watching uh rewatching holy smoke 
just like little throwaway details like the parents having a waterbed or a cockatoo perched on an ironing board, you know? Like, where do they come from? I love it. Oh, yeah. There's like a sheep that they put like snacks on when they're having a party. I noticed at one point, <laughs> which fucking rules. The first like 30 or 45 minutes of this movie are like full on sweetie. And then it essentially transitions into being more of a drama, but a drama that still has these weirdo gonzo elements that are just played pretty Yeah, like straight. a gonzo romantic drama, I guess. I guess. Uh, yeah. But I also, everything you learn about the making of this movie, it does feel, I mean, she well known for a she's well known for a very sort of loose style on set where she's like well let's try this let's write like it's not like mm-hmm. rigor and like this feels like one of her loosest movies in that regard a lot of sort of rolling with the punches and going where the actors want to go is sort of what i've found in the research like which makes sense because it's a character psycho you know like it's the two of them locked in a room for a lot of the action like it makes sense that and they're very very different performers they're very different generations all that i think also if you give him the chance harvey keitel will not resist turning any and every scene into some sort of acting class exercise which a lot of this movie feels like like it's it's like the the acting coaches in the back of the room going like go further see what you can find he's like absolutely i can't wait to go for it right like harvey keitel will always go as as wild as big as you want him to he's putting a spelunking helmet on with a light and he's just going deeper and deeper (laughs) i'm Um, gonna i'm gonna say something controversial maybe we should table it till later but because because i don't want to front load because i really do like this movie a lot but I kind of think that Harvey Keitel is very unsteady in it. I agree. Like I, acting I think, exercise, I feel like he is not dialed into that character until she puts a dress on him. Then it starts to work. Then also the cultural image that he comes in with, that baggage starts to pay off. But in the early going when he's, you know, I mean, when they say, oh, you could persuade anybody to do anything, I'm not even persuaded that, that he's... That is the problem. That he is that person at that point. <laughs> when he comes in and we're being told, like, this is the A-plus cult deprogrammer... He's a cult exiter. Exiter. Yeah, yes, he's an exit what, strategist What kind of title is that? <laughs> but, like... There's nothing about his vibe or his sort of strategy in the first half of this movie where I'm like, yeah, this guy definitely knows what he's doing and does it all the time, (laughs) which is weird. (laughs) His value in this movie is more as like a pop cultural object named Harvey Keitel, you know, like the way that it's subverting what she does with him in the piano. And also building upon it, she sees a real sensitivity to him that I think interests her, but it's almost too sensitive in the early going like i kind of wanted a little bit more like bravado machismo and confidence and i didn't feel like i was totally getting that from him and also winslet is never less than a total hurricane force in this movie no matter how she's what she's directing that energy toward and it's just like no contest whatsoever when you get the two of them together when it's like that a she off. will eventually right. not not even eventually overpower him but even within a scene sometimes see i i think i like the kaitel performance more than you guys did in the sense oh, that i like the he, performance in a lot of ways I, i'm not i'm not completely yeah. dissing the performance no no no, on, no. i just think he worked for me in the initial introduction as like a a superficial representation of like mr slick right this this sort of like riff on the wolf and then right. i think 
like like the middle hour plus, I think he totally loses his grasp on the character it's, until the end that you're talking about. It's just weird Kyle. when he comes in and he's like, this, this is it, baby. Give me the money. Give me the big bucks. I am here to deprogram. And then he's like, I don't know. Should we like watch a movie about other cults? That's a bummer. <laughs> you know, like it's a, I'm going to take your sorry. I'm going to put it over there. See what you think of that. Like it just the confidence is not oozing off of him in the way that I maybe wanted to. He is Harvey well, Keitel. He is wearing sunglasses. He's got that going for him for sure. sure. He's got the look is great. This, the look the is look. great. Yeah, the, the all the, black, the, the little fucking Van Dyke. Um, I, 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 I guess I had this breakthrough watching this. It's like what? What's the thing about Harvey Keitel's performer I've never been able to put my finger on that makes his performances so odd, whether they work or they don't. And I think a part of it is he might completely lack any capacity for voice modulation. Like, aside from the fact that obviously he's got such a fucking strong accent, you know, and such a strong a like, sense laugh. of Brooklyn My vibe, right? Laugh. All that shit. I feel like Harvey Keitel delivers every single line in every single movie at the exact same volume. And sometimes when you're asking him to be like really intense and high status, you're like, can you give it a little more? And sometimes when you're like, Harvey, I need you to go gentle. It sounds like he's yelling, you know? Like, it just feels like he delivers every line at sort of this exact volume. I'm Harvey Keitel. Let me tell you a secret right now. I think it's... we, Kyle, I don't know, Kyle, how you are generally... Where you generally fall on Keitel. But I'm looking at his his production credits, his IMDb. Mm-hmm. In between The Piano and Holy Smoke, he was in 24 movies. <laughs> and, and only one... Like, one, one of them is, like, Get Shorty... Like, you know, like a couple of them are tiny roles, but most of them are big roles. Like, he just was everywhere. After a long career. After, like, you know, obviously, like his early (laughs) stuff and the duelists, right? You know, and stuff like that. You know, like after a long and steady career that peaks with like the Bugsy nomination, Thelma and Louise, and the piano and Reservoir Dogs, right? right? After that, he was just in everything and was working constantly. It's hard to remember. Like, culture was saturated with Keitel in a lot of shitty movies or movies that didn't go anywhere, but like also some good ones. Where where are you on Keitel, Kyle? Well, now when he pops up in something, you're like, Harvey Keitel. Now it's not nice. where you've been, right. yeah. which yeah. was not the experience in the 90s. In the 90s, it's just like, I mean, some of these, you know, Rising Sun, Monkey Trouble. I'm not reading them all, but, you know, Pulp Fiction, <laughs> Smoke and Blue in the Face, right. obviously. Clockers, which he's great in. From Dust Till Dawn, Copland, Fairy Tale, A True Story, where he plays Harry Houdini. Uh, yeah. You know, like, you know, and then like Finding Graceland, which is like some other Elvis movie where he plays out like and then Jesus. a million other things that I've never heard of. Right, you know, U five seven one. The year well, after that, this right, is U five seven one. He plays uh, Satan and Little Nicky. I he mean, does he's that, he's good, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I I think there's a part maybe of just like it took him that long to finally achieve that sort of status that like Pacino and De Niro and his contemporaries had had for so long. You know, like he obviously like kept working in the eighties, but it was like he was doing a lot of like 
James Toback movies that didn't really make an impact, right? Yeah. He, yeah. he obviously does Last Temptation of Christ, which is big, but it's such a controversial movie. Like, Two Jakes is like a fucking belly flop. You know, he, getting dubbed in fucking Saturn 3. Like, a, a lot of his good movies don't really go anywhere. And then he has some notable flops. And then, yeah, you just look at it and you're like, 91, Thelma and Louise, Bugsy. Huge hit, finally gets his sort of like career Oscar nomination. Then the next year, Reservoir Dogs, Bad Lieutenant, Sister Act. And then the year after that, The Piano. It's just like, okay, finally, you get, you're in paycheck mode, Harvey. You finally have raised your quote. You're both in successful like populist films and Oscar films again. And then, yeah, as, as you said, he just fucking dines out. Okay, but I do think part of it is that he was very, he wasn't, I mean, maybe with the studio movies motivated by that paycheck and cashing in, but he was eminently castable in small indies for all of the 90s, which is why he does appear in so many of the movies that we associate with that 90s boom, you know, to even do Reservoir Dogs and to keep doing those kinds of films is why he worked that much. And Pacino and De Niro were not doing that. Right. The Reservoir Dogs thing, a crucial, right. That's like, you know, one of the early Sundance successes. That's one of the early 90s indie boom movies. And he's not only the star, but he's why it happened. Him, like, lending his name to it was why it got money. Yeah. So then, right. He becomes sort of uh, almost an indie movie mascot. Maybe we should do Smoke and Blue in the Face. On the Patreon. I know your dad produced those movies. Yeah. They're great Uh, movies. Yeah. Um, Yeah, They uh, are great movies. There, there is, I think, sort of this mythology to the fact that it's like he was like Scorsese's guy, right? It's right. like here's like the great American filmmaker of a generation. He found this fucking guy and he became like his avatar for years. And then he sort of goes on to, you know, De Niro becomes more the face of everything and whatever. But it is this like I, th- I think filmmakers starting out developing their voices. He becomes a guy who sort of like helps you get your grounding, you know? You want Harvey Keitel in your first couple movies. Yeah, and even though I do think that he's sort of like tentative and ill at ease in the first part of Holy Smoke, when I was trying to sort of mentally recast him with other guys around that time, I thought, well, but do they? would any of them kind of bring what he brings when he's in a dress and begging for her at the end of that movie? No, Because right. then you're not just playing with him in the movie, you're playing with him in all those other movies. That's the guy who's in the dress. And you know... Outside of like De Niro, there there are few men of that era that would have had that much heft in that kind of cinematic image, I think. And he's obviously someone Campion totally trusts, you know, and like he gets her process and he only talks about her in the most glowing terms. So like in a movie like this, that's obviously going to be, you know, working very intensely with actors in a very sort of pressurized scene like he you know he he makes sense he she knows he's gonna do whatever like whatever and and two things building off of what you said kyle one literally the image of him right he just has so much visual power aside from his like legacy as an actor he just looks so fucking striking right which I think for, like, Jane Campion, he's also, like, a piece of art direction. You're never going to get someone who looks as interesting as him, especially in the multiple forms this guy has to go through. And then the second thing is, beyond uh, what you're talking about of sort of, like, well, he, do- he does have the weight and the reputation and the the iconography as an actor. But someone like De Niro, it would be oppressive. He is not as much of, like, an untenable movie star, 
to to where where you're not going to be able to mold him that fucking much. You're never going to be able to get out of your head. This is Robert De Niro doing this, you know. Whereas like this is Harvey Keitel doing this doesn't put it in quotes. It gives it some weird power. Um, I don't know. It's a fascinating movie. Yes. Let's switch to Winslet though. Let's talk Winslet. Sure. And then I want you to, uh, I, we need to go into how this movie gets made, because you, you got the dossier open. I'm kind of fascinated. I mean, I, I'll tell you, it's not as shocking as you might think, and it's because Jane Campion made the piano. So she just went to a little man by the name of Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. and said, like, I want to make a movie about, like, a cult, uh, you know, someone who's a culty programmer falling in love with his subject, his client. And Harvey Weinstein was like, "Sounds good." I, you know, I don't think the move. This movie was extraordinarily expensive, and but it was she a blank was, check in terms of it blank, was just it's reputation. A blank check. Like any you must idea, know what you're doing. it's just an idea right. she had, you know, right. and like that was enough because it's like, hey, Jane Campion, you just made a movie that won three Oscars. You know, like you're the second mm-hmm. woman ever nominated for best director. What do you want to do? And she's like, I want to do Portrait of a Lady. I want to do this cult movie. And she had a third idea that never came to fruition. The budget for this movie was $15 million, which yep. is pretty high, uh-huh. I, I guess, for 1999. When you think about, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, obviously it's got locations. You know, they went to India. It's got, yeah, yeah. But that's so, yeah. So, you know, but it was really just a total blank check situation of like she wanted to do this movie with her sister who co-wrote it with her and and, and the other the factor of course is she, as we said she's getting the first follow-up movie from the female lead of the most successful movie of all time well you know that's true but they like it's not she was not like off like they auditioned her like you know it's like she auditioned like 500 actresses i think people were desperate to be in this movie yeah, uh, which you know, again, it it speaks to her clout at that moment. Like, so I think tons of big actresses were trying out for the role. And let me find her quote about Winslet because it's you know, uh, it's very complimentary. But uh, basically, once Winslet came in, she was like, "Yeah, this is what I want. This is like, um, you know, Kaitel had been her choice from the start." But here, let me find the exact quote. Who Winslet, by the way, who rules. Have you ever interviewed her, Kyle? No, I never have. She Ooh. seems like a great interview, I will yes, say. Because yeah. all the quotes in our dossier about this movie are phenomenal. Like, uh, basically... She's very candid. Yes, right. She, she is 23 when they're filming this movie, which is mind-boggling. Right. All right, so here's Winslet. So they brought her in, and they, you know, they read with her, and then they had her read against Kaitel. Okay, and she was immediately basically holding her own. And Campion says, like, some of the girls we saw were wonderful. They loved the mind games. Uh, they had no idea what could happen. Losing yourself in a power struggle with someone. I'm terrified of going down that line. But when Kate read, I knew she was the one. There's a real balance of energy with them. So I guess it was like she could stick up against Kaitel. Sure. You know, she's a very formidable opponent for him. And I guess maybe some of the actresses they were seeing wasn't worth so much. This is why I bring up her being 23. She feels like a fucking elder statesman already at this point where you're just like, I mean, we're obviously viewing it through the prism of today. Right. But I just even when this movie came out, I was like, oh, of course, Kate Winslet is commonly thought of as one of the great living actors. And it's like she's 23. She already has two Oscar nominations. She gets two more before she's 30. I wonder, too, if she doesn't feel somewhat older 
were more veteran at that point because you'd just seen her opposite Leonardo DiCaprio, who reads sure. younger than her in Titanic. Yes. So to go from that situation to opposite Harvey Keitel, who was 60 when this came out, is a <laughs> real wild flip. It's so wild. He he looks good for 60. Uh, he looks you know, incredible. Are you he looks kidding? For 60. He looks really good in this movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the age gap is is pronounced. But yeah, I mean, she was, as, as you're saying, Griff, she was an actress with such... Right. She was so precocious in a way, like, you know, obviously right. this deep in her career, which she this is one of, you know, she hasn't even made like 10 movies yet. She's already a double nominee. She's been, you know, like she's right. She's a huge. But like uh, deal. compare that precociousness with, say, Jennifer Lawrence, right, who obviously has mm. a run of getting cast in roles that are clearly meant for women who are older than her. And everyone's like, we're just going to let her play a character that should be 30 something at 23 because she seems wise beyond her years. Right. But you're right. always watching it going. She seems wise beyond her years. Not she is believably the person who has had this amount of life experience. Whereas Kate Winslet, I'm just like you are, you don't seem precocious. You know, you seem just like completely solid and grounded and wise period. Yes. Well, Griff, let me ask you this. Do you think, do you buy her as 19 in this movie? This is the other thing. I mean, it, it's, it, it, I think she always reads older than she is. And I'm not even talking on a visual level. I do think it's, it's, it's the reason why I think the reader is her worst performance, because I don't think she can play unintelligent. I, I think she is just too smart an actor. And the reader is so based around this idea that she sort of is emotionally and psychologically stunted that I just constantly refuse to buy anything that's happening on screen, right? And so I think even like you're watching Heavenly Creatures and you're like, this has to be a 21-year-old playing a 16-year-old, you know? I think especially sure. for the first chunk of her career, she always plays as this is probably an actor five years older than the character who is uh, uh, pulling it off well enough. And then in this case, right, I guess she is four years older than the character and it feels like she reads five years older than she is in real life. Um, I, I mean, I think you you need it because of what David said of like she needs to be holding her own against Kaitel. Uh, and right. she she is inherently young and youthful, but I think that's part of the interesting balance of casting her is that she can very easily read as more mature than him in scenes. Well, just the whole concept of holding your own against Kate Winslet is a yeah. formidable challenge for a lot of actors, you know? I think even on Mayor of Easttown, part of the suspense was not just like, you know, the culmination, the resolution of the mystery – but watching these various men like Evan Peters and Guy Pierce kind of go up against her. And and you, the viewer, are kind of judging like, are they worthy of her? Not worthy right. of Mare, but even like worthy of kind of like going toe-to-toe with her energy. Can you do that? I think that's part of the reason that uh, Guy Pierce is cast in that kind of nothing role. I know he was like a last-minute fill-in, but also right. they've worked together before. And he right. can like sort of go toe-to-toe with her and and not a lot of men can in a way that it feels evenly matched especially for a movie like this where it's so much about power dynamics and this you know battle of the sexes that's the sort of energy you want and she yeah she brings it utterly she has so much composure as an actor that she can never play 
low status entirely, you know? And so you need to put her up against someone who can really hold their own against her because she's never going to be able to really truly seem under anyone's thumb, you know? At best, you have someone kind of matching her. She has had a weird recent career. I'm yep. now looking. And Mayor, Mayor of Easttown was sort of a great big comeback for her um, because... I guess because, like Kyle is saying, it's sort of worthy of her stature in that way of like, you know, she's playing someone with a reputation in that in that show, mm-hmm. right? Like she's the old star from high school, like you know, like she's kind of everyone. She walks into a bar and everyone's kind of like, mm, you know, like, and that worked for her. And I feel like that worked for her in Ammonite, which is not a movie I liked, mm-hmm. uh, but I thought she was good again at playing yeah. someone who's got decades of history behind her she fucking goes down to the beach and she gets her fossils if you want to have a love affair (laughs) with her around that that's fine you know but like but like apart from that i like you know the uh, the mountain between us wonder wheel collateral beauty the dressmaker like post steve jobs i feel like yeah it, it has been tough for Hollywood to find her. These are roles that on paper you're like, I can, you know, I can see why these appealed, but like I want more for her. Look at the yeah. look at the run between Reader and Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs almost functions as a comeback for her, right? Because it's like yeah. Reader Revolutionary Road the same year. People thought Revolutionary Road was gonna be her Oscar. Then the reader obviously gets the nomination, the category no one expected, she wins, right? But it's just this element of like she's fucking overdue. They're gonna give her the award for one of these two movies this year. She wins both at the Globes. She gets her Oscar. Then she doesn't do anything for three years. Mildred Pierce for right. HBO with Todd Haynes is her big passion Is that project. when she? Is that when she maybe got remarried and had another kid as well? Like, isn't that sort of in that period there? I don't know. Maybe I think not, actually. that's part of it. I think it's also that she had been working so much. Like, she essentially did two or three movies a year almost every year. Yeah. Uh, and, and Mildred Pierce was, like, a big, long thing that she produced, that she willed into yes. existence, you know, that she had to, like, get off the ground. But then that same year is Carnage and Contagion, which, mm-hmm. like, she's very good in Contagion, but she's, she's sort of just, like, supporting the group, right? It's, like, yep. not the showy role, but she's excellent, no. excellent, excellent in it. And then uh, Carnage is, like, a weird misfire sort of all around, although yeah, you don't that put makes that sense. on her. Right. Because the, it was a hot play. It's a big, you know, totally. like that's the, totally. right. you know, you get that. Right. But then, uh, and then uh, Labor Day. Two years after that, Labor Day, don't forget, David, <laughs> that she has the segment movie 43 where she goes on a date with Hugh Jackman who has testicles on his face. I, I yes. I mean, I've never seen it, but I'm aware. Which of one it. of those two actors do you think signed on for that segment first? Do you get Jackman because you have Winslet, or do you get Winslet because you have Jackman? Yeah, I think it was Jackman because you want to be funny. No, I think because right. that that was that was the segment that got the movie made. They produced that as a spec, and it was the entire like sending that around Hollywood as a reel of like, look, we got these two really classy, highbrow actors doing fucking Kentucky Fried movie. And off of that, they got other people to sign on for shoots. That was like a self-produced fucking like proof of concept thing so that is the same year as labor day and then the following year is divergent little (sighs) chaos which she obviously does for rickman right who she just like loved thoroughly that movie's Uh, good and then she does divergent insurgent Mm -hmm. she did it and then by the divergent by the time Steve Jobs comes out, you're like, oh, right, fucking Kay Winslet, like Grand Dame of the fucking the movie screen. And then it's back to like 
Dressmaker's weird. I, Triple just, Nine, it, I think she's good in, but it's a bug nuts performance. That's a weird performance in a weird movie, yes. I but this Collateral is my Beauty thing. is insane. Right. Right. I mean, she's always been someone who takes really weird roles and takes on really ambitious projects. So it's not like there's been a huge shift in her career. It's just, I guess, that the parts get different. I don't know. I, I Do don't you think know. there's someone in her age bracket who is taking the roles that she should have been She's getting? getting? Market corrected. I mean, who is in her, like, who are her contemporaries? I, I, I will say. If you I want don't... someone to cry and scream and suffer, yeah. then you'd go to Naomi Watts at that period of time. Right. Naomi Watts um, is at least she's like, trying to Kate, horn in on her territory for a bit. Yeah. Kate, Kate Winslet, because of Titanic. Stage will always be a major star so it is like and you know that she can do just about anything so it is like a question of like so why wasn't she getting really good movies then and to be fair she was working with directors who were acclaimed just the movie she always sought out out interesting directors yeah right she's often in she's often in a weird movie by said interesting director sure like a holy smoke right um but uh and then i guess like she she made a lot of like she would often gravitate towards like sort of dark and depressing material like little children or david gale yeah. or you know all the king's men is kind of you know. and then like even when she pops up in the holiday the holiday is such an insult to her as much as we enjoy the holiday uh-huh like because not only not only it's not that it saddles her with jack black i love jack black he's a cutie sure it's that it saddles her with no romance right her and jack black don't even like kiss until the final frame of the movie right it's mostly about eli wallach yeah yeah and then she's just sort of like oh this is lovely like the whole time and it just kind of feels like this weird practical joke that's being played on her it's also I don't like know. the only time she's done something like that. And if I remember correctly from when we did that episode, did the research at the time, she sort of took it as like it was one of those things that actors get into where they're like, I want to prove I can do this. No one right. thinks I'm funny. I'd, I'd like to see no one thinks I that. could be yeah. in a rom com. Um I, I wanna I wanna loop back to the uh beginning of her career. But but to your point, Kyle, about like who are her contemporaries who are taking the parts that she should be playing, I'd argue that I, I would argue there aren't parts i can think of in the last five years where i'm like she should have gotten that like it might be the dearth of the roles that she's fit for if she doesn't want to play fucking nova prime you know like if she doesn't want to uh i mean she and she did her version of that in divergence certainly but like i feel like i have read multiple interviews with actresses in her age bracket who said like when i saw it at mayor of Easttown, i got so pissed off like, that is the exact type of project and part yeah. I have been begging my agent to find, and she fucking got it. And now I just keep on saying, like, why can't I find my mayor of Easttown? Like, it feels like she got the thing that everyone in her class kind of wanted. I wonder, too, if she wasn't, in the wake of Titanic, maybe a little hesitant to do other romantic projects. You right. know, in fact, with something like Holy Smoke, she's really subverting that. Yes. Because you would think, having starred in one of the most iconic romances of all time, that she'd have a few more on her resume. And she has very few more. And some of them, like, you know, um, Labor Day are... Uh, not great. Well, when she's playing, <laughs> when she's playing romance, it's like that or little children where it's like deeply depressed. Like she's this broken, horribly lonely woman who starts an ill-advised love affair. You know, she never does like grand sweeping romance. The hot, yes. I mean, she's, she's on that poster. 
she she is more comfortable with her sexuality. I feel like that than a lot of actresses. Right, which and, is and, the best thing about her. She rules about in right, that. And, I, and, I, and odd forms of sexuality. I mean, like sort of in a Campion esque way of like sexuality as behavior rather than as like titillation for audience. Or um, both. Or both. I have a great quote for, to read from her later on that, but but I also I will point out that right with hideous kinky, she did pick that project. Before, like she made that before Titanic, but she sure. knew she had Titanic. Sure. Um, so, and obviously she was already an Oscar nominee and she was about, you know, she basically like her mainstream moment is happening. And she says she took Hideous Kinky over a big budget movie that she doesn't name. So I do think a lot of the time, and that like everyone on her team was like, what are you doing? You know, like a lot of the time, Perhaps there was an easier or more commercial role being, you know, a forces of nature, you know, like some sure. just kind of like total, you know, down the middle. This is like a Hollywood rom-com you showing. The most famous thing she turned down is Shakespeare in Love, obviously. Right. Some of the other stuff she turned down that we have listed is Autumn in New York, uh, which uh, Winona sure. Ryder gets. Winona and Gear, and, yeah. Yeah, and Anna and the King, which uh, Jodie uh-huh. Foster ends up doing, which I, in fact... Big romances. Uh, Right, right. Where and I think it was often her being like, "Eh, I don't want to do the same thing," or whatever. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, I'm I always hesitate to do what I'm about to do, which is ascribe a little too much control and foresight to an actor's career. So much of the time, it's just about, well, what's the project? What kind of window do I have? Let me just go of do course, it. Right. There's but so if much you weird look at something, forces, yeah, yeah. If you look at something like Holy Smoke, it's not just defying expectations of what Campion was doing in that point in her career, but also obviously Winslet too. So it's kind of this double pop cultural force of, okay, you think you know us? Let's throw you a curveball. No, you're right, Kyle, that very often it is just what's the next thing I can get. But she was, she had a bird in the hand post-Titanic, right? She had a like, freaking birdcage in her hand. Yeah, she had right, tons right. of birds in the hand. She yeah. had a fucking aviary in her hand. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I I mean, it's interesting because, like, you know, famously, her and Leo are both, like, 15th choices for Titanic, right? And another thing we sort of haven't brought up here because I, I, it sort of flooded back to me while watching this movie. I so completely put on mind because it's so absurd now to think about. But there was, like, so much shit at the time about her being, like quote-unquote full-figured or chubby, right? That she did not look like other leading women. Where I think this was a period of time where women were particularly skinny on screen. Uh, But I also think she would talk about often having these meetings where people would say, like, you could have this role if you lose 15 pounds. And she pushed against that entirely, and I think to some degree pushed against even pursuing that entire type of role. But there was, like, people would fucking make fat jokes about her after Titanic, which is absurd to think about. Let me read this quote. I'm going to read it now because it's so good. It's from a Premiere Magazine interview. Yeah, Uh, She was paranoid that she didn't look good while making this film. So, like, you know, she was worried about that because obviously she's naked in the film and it's, you know, about, you know, she's constantly in states of undress. And then she saw the film and she thought, "Ah, shit, I look good. Kate Winslet. I honestly would describe myself physically as someone who is shapely but slim. I mean, look, she juts her ribs out. It's an absolute joke. I have a normal woman's body. I like having a good pair of tits on me and a good ass. If I didn't, I don't think I'd feel attractive. You just don't get enough quotes like this from Hollywood actors. (laughs) I love it. 
I love this it. This is the other. Th- this is what's so fascinating about her. I mean, we're talking about like how how lofty the challenge is of trying to go toe to toe with Kate Winslet on screen. But her entire reputation is like she's kind of no nonsense. She's super kind. She's just hardworking. She's not some like scary obsessive method actor. She's very open and sort of body in interviews. You know, she's like deflated her own persona faster than anybody. Uh, it, yeah. It's it's fascinating because you know she doesn't carry herself with this sense of like she's not Kate Blanchett she's not Meryl Streep you know but yet she's she's thought of in those on that echelon is Blanchett kind of a competitor even though Blanchett is a good 10 years older than her probably or maybe a little less but like they came up at the same time in terms of prestige projects right so yeah Blanchett is a type we did on some Fight? episode where where you were pulling your rank about the fact that you were posting regularly on the awards watch forums and I was only a uh, lurker, but that the yes. narrative at the time was that I'm sorry before they had the cease and desist, yeah. uh, that the narrative at the time was that her uh, it, the two Kates were in similar positions and by and large despite making weird choices, Winslet on balance was handling it okay and Blanchett had kind of blown it until the Aviator. Right, Blanchett had a tough a tough time between uh elizabeth and the aviator i mean that that's just true like she was seen as the sort of you know it's like yeah i mean we don't need to get into blanchard right now but you know pushing tin the gift the man who cried chipping news mm-hmm. bandits like you know like obviously lord of the rings she's she's incredible but like when she had a lead role oscar project it was like the missing or veronica garen sure where it would be like kind of an also ran you know even though it had the festival release and all that like uh and then and then whatever she clicks a little later they're very different actresses obviously hollywood definitely thinks about them very differently but they were competitors at the time they were yeah there is something though about about Kate and Holy Smoke that made me think of Kate Blanchett, which is the scene of Kate Winslet in this movie where she's in the car singing Alanis. Like great scene early on, wearing a bindi, a, a great a scene, bindi. And yep, much much to impact uh, to unpack there. But you know, I wrote an article <laughs> for the Times, I think last spring, uh, about uh, one of my favorite subjects, which is Oscar winning actresses reacting emotionally to opera, which mm. you see in Moonstruck. Okay. Pretty woman, Margaret, motherfucker, and uh, watching Kate Winslet sing Alanis in this movie reminded me of when Kate Blanchett sings Total Eclipse of the Heart in Bandits. Not a great movie, but mm-hmm. I but still remember that scene. Good performance. And then I realized, a very fun. No, wait. There is there is a corollary to this that I also love, which is Oscar-winning actresses singing in their cars. Mm. You've got. Nicole Kidman singing Joni Mitchell in Practical Magic. You've got Julianne Moore singing Lady Gaga in After the Wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia Roberts has done this in multiple movies. It's a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Singing, singing along to the radio is pretty much always going to win me over, I'll say. I like know, in any truly. movie. So simple, yes. but it works. Right. Tommy very, Boy. very simple. Yeah. Exciting. Good. Uh, f- uh, Jerry Maguire. Like, if you, you know, oh, like, yeah, sure. there's, there's yeah. So, so many, so many great radio scenes. But um, okay, holy smoke. So yeah, but can, can when, we just? So- I, I I I just. I'm sorry, David, but just because we've been sort of talking around every other direction, I just want to like read in chronological order. Okay. Heavenly creatures, obviously her debut movie. Wonderful. Then performance. Kid in King Arthur's Court, right? But that same year, Sense and Sensibility, Oscar nomination. Here we go, someone to look out for, right? Then Jude and Hamlet. She's then the year after that is Titanic. 
Mm-hmm. Then Hideous Kinky comes out the following year, which is obviously never a movie that was going to break through. But I remember there being this question of like, is the Titanic bubble so huge that anything they're in now is going to like connect? I remember seeing a Hideous Kinky trailer where at the end of the trailer in theaters, there was a card saying that uh, Kate Winslet was going to be doing AOL chats with fans. Mm. <laughs> That and I was just fun. like, they're presenting her as if like she's like a teeny bopper, like figure of obsession where they might be able to get them to see this movie about like a single mother going on a spiritual quest. And then she makes right. a different spiritual quest movie that she is does. like a bizarre sex comedy. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then Quills, Enigma, yep. like two movies that don't really exist. Christmas Carol, the movie animated. And then like Iris 2001. She's back in sort of the Oscar game. She has things that like miss after that. But then you're in this run of like David Gale is obviously a fucking pan out. But then Eternal Sunshine, Finding Neverland, Romance of Cigarettes is a pan out. Little Children's another nomination. All the King's Men is a pan out. Holiday is like a medium hit. Uh, and then and then she fucking wins the Oscar for the reader. Can we can we talk about that spiritual quest, Griff? Like, yes. Um, you know, I, I was trying to think back to that era, how it was presented in that era, and then also how we look at it this year through our sort of, you know, hopefully more sort of culturally attuned eyes. But that really was an era of like cultural tourism by white women in India. You yes. know, uh, not just her singing along to Alanis, but Alanis thanking India in thank you. Gwen Stefani with her yep. bindi and her sari. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a real thing at that yes. time. Yes. I, and uh, there's a lot of movies in the. I mean, obviously her her co-star Leo is in the beach, which is sort of a movie mm-hmm. about like the dark side of white tourism in Asia. <laughs> like, and there's a lot of other movies that are on along those. Like, what what do you call it? God, I'm forgetting. So you know, uh, uh, another day in paradise. Seven years right? in Tibet. Uh, no, but no, those it's movies that are about but, like but, uh, people sure. getting guess, stuck yes. in um, prisons and you know, come on, help me You're out. You're talking here. about the the dark versions of Seven Years in Tibet, the ones that are are commenting on subverting that. Yeah, uh, uh, what am I thinking of? Yeah, I, I'm looking yes. it up now. Return to right. Paradise, sorry, is the movie I was thinking of, right? And uh, which is Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche and mm-hmm. Joaquin, and there, but there's another freaking prison uh you know like thai prison movie at that time anyway but yes uh winslet th- those aesthetics yes they're very dominant in the 90s mm-hmm. i think when kate i uh, sorry when jane and anna campion wrote this movie they went to india and talked to uh like they wanted to talk to like transplants uh in ashrams like to try and get the uh the mindset down uh, a lot of and harry krishna people and stuff like that like they were trying to figure out uh like well here she's very as, as campion says she's fascinated with contemporary spirituality she's like mm-hmm. i'm interested in like the tibetan monk who is very spiritual but is an alcoholic like things you can't put together like that uh you know that that's i guess those those sort of weird clashes rather than just focusing on these very you know pure aesthetic goals or whatever um she said a lot of a lot of young israelis in india she said after having served in the army yeah um it, it, you know culture tends to exist on like a 25 30 year cycle in terms of uh nostalgia and reevaluation and shit and i do think there was a, a 90s thing in particular of sort of like re-examining hippie culture and the tenets of it and the like idealism of that time, it, it sort of contrasts to Gen X 
and and the sort of like desire to find alternative modes of spirituality and all that sort of shit. Like there that that was a thread. Oh yeah. Yeah, I I was going to say even the like trippier scenes and all of the like VFX of the time and all of the like you know iconography that they're using in it it feels so of the moment um like yeah it's great i actually really loved seeing those like ridiculous graphics now i was so nostalgic for them this movie is so bizarre because like everything about the 30 first 30 or 40 minutes feels so specific and you're kind of like huh this is not what i expected to be and right when you settle into it the movie sort of pulls the rug out and changes its whole fucking demeanor but you do have like the soundtrack is almost exclusively Neil Diamond. Love that. You Love have this that. odd manic comic tone, right? Mm-hmm. Like all these quirky characters. She calls this her comedy. Like when she reflects yes, on very this much movie. So. Yeah. Are you right. kidding? I mean, Absolutely like there's the first half unequivocally. Yeah. There's yeah. there's comic beats out of almost every scene in the first 40 minutes. It's, you know, and it's it's wild the way it's shot. Not just, you know, the the very uh, late 90s-ness of the cinematography and the vibe, um, but, you know, the the matrixy green text that you'll see sometimes. I yeah. just have to shout the, that and out. The, you know, she's, she's uh, uh, Campion's from New Zealand, but this movie set in Australia is going, I, I don't think full Australia, not full Baz Luhrmann, but like maybe like PJ Hogan level um, <laughs> in the sort of you know, willingness to kind of push it. Um, yeah. And, and and George Miller, and we've talked about like a lot of that, that weird manic sensibility mm-hmm. of 90s Australian cinema. Um, I, there's also though, like, I mean, you talk about that waterbed moment, the, I don't, I'm not, I'm not putting you on the spot, David, uh, but have you watched uh, her shorts yet on Criterion? Nope. No, haven't watched okay. them. No. So Passionless no. Moments, which is her third sort of short or the second, I don't remember the chronology. The one oh, she co-writes yeah. with Gerard Lee, who she does uh, uh, Sweetie with, with and then later Top the Lake right, with. Right. That one is this sort of black and white like collection of moments that are sort of almost like one panel comics. Like it's almost Roy Anderson-esque. Right. And a lot of her compositions in the first 30 minutes of the movie are like that, you know? Even just like the the parents at the waterbed's a perfect example of that, where you're just like you have this like weird depth of of detail density in frame, where there might be like three or four different funny things happening that have nothing to do with the main thrust of what the scene's about or the dialogue. You know, um, there's just wackiness, and you know, wacky. it's it comes from that part of the world. Affectionate I mean, wackiness, it, 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 yeah. Oh, very very much so. Um, right. That's uh, why I think that's why it works. It never feels not weaponized wackiness. Right. No. But it's it's you know that kind of tone is unusual, especially for American audiences. In the in the Mad Max book, George Miller's wife, Margaret Sixel, who who cut the movie, she's the editor, she won the Oscar for it, talked about how Warner Brothers wanted to cut anything that felt wacky. You know, yeah. and yeah. Mad Max is bursting at the seams with things that could be considered wacky. And it it creates this kind of razor's edge of what the fuck is happening? And and the same to some degree in, in Holy Smoke in the first 30 minutes, especially if you think you're going to get something that's along the lines of piano or portrait of a lady. She disabuses you of that <laughs> extremely and entirely. Speaking of PJ Hogan, you know, yeah, like her her uh, wacky sister-in-law Yvonne and then uh her brother Tim and his boyfriend Yanni like 
the way they're costumed, the way they that's all very Muriel's wedding, right? Like this sort of like yes. fun bunch of oddballs kind of vibe to the extended family and 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 everything, which is like kind of helps keeps the stakes. Like there there's a version of this movie that is way more intense in terms of like we've got to get her out of there and we've got to like lock her in a house and like work on right. her right like and the stakes always feel kind of casual here like they almost prank her home and like you know and then she's almost as mad at them as they are at her when she finally discovers that like she's been basically like lured home under uh, mean pretenses and yeah yeah it's it's goofy well, even when her mother goes to kind of extricate her from India, when we see Kate in that scene, they're not really like leaning into it or satirizing or parodying her attitude. She actually seems like fairly casual and like and happy right. in her sense of enlightenment. And Kate's not going too hard on what another actress could, could consider like punchlines to play in that scene. Uh, she is very at ease and it's appealing. And so... The stakes of the thing feel very different because, you know, it's kind of a flip in that scene of like, oh, does she really need to be pried from this? She seems like fine. Doesn't seem as bad as what they were imagining. It feels like she'll figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, even if she does, like, sort of pal around with this group for a while, it feels like she'll probably figure it out on her own, right? And like you know, go off and do something different later. I don't know. Like there are never, there's well, never the real danger of like, oh my God, she's about to go, you know, drink Kool-Aid, right? Like, you know, it's going to be something terrifying. For sure, Campion leans on like the sort of, you know, satirizing how these white suburbanites feel about sure, Indian right, culture. Right. But I don't know that she ever pushes as hard on the pedal of how Kate Winslet's character feels. No, and Kate Winslet's character is presented to us, right, with her friend recounting to the parents her sort of getting brainwashed and sucked in by this. And that representation we see, which is sort of the the story version of it, is so heightened and cartoony. And then when you get to her and she's just kind of a person, right? Like, as you said, Kyle, like, she's not playing brainwashed. She's not playing, like, manic. She's also not playing too low-key, where it's like, oh, this woman's completely normal. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things like we were talking about this in the piano episode, but that so much of Campion's strength is what you were saying, David, the the her ability to sort of like organically develop a scene with actors. Right. And I think find unconventional mm. energy within a scene. I mean, it, it, the energy contained within any single Jane Campion scene is usually more interesting than a lot of movies in in total, whether or not the films are entirely successful, right? Uh, yeah. And she just finds moments that are bizarre, ways to throw things off the hump. But I think when her movies connect most with people, it is things like The Piano or Power of the Dog or Bright Star possibly, where it's like, I know what type of movie this is, right? I have seen these types of stories adapted before, you know, period pieces, uh, sort of aligned with a genre that usually can be kind of stayed and like built around stiff upper lips. And she's imbuing it with this odd kind of life, you know, this weird undercurrent of sexuality and humor and tension, all these things that make them harder to put your fingers around. And then when she's doing that for this movie, where the entire premise is so complex and wackadoo to begin with, and the movie is so unquantifiable in genre, I think for a lot of people, they're just like, I, I don't, there's too much fucking shit 
going on. And I also think not to harp on it, but it's just you consider the rug pull of what people think a Jane Campion movie is at this point. Right. And then you get to the first 40 minutes of this movie, which goes so goddamn hard. And you have a percentage of the audience that probably is like, I'm fucking out done this is not my tempo right i don't fucking get this and then whatever percentage of people are able to reacclimate to the tone then she sort of pulls the rug out and she's like no i'm gonna now take this like pretty fucking seriously i'm not gonna remove the wackiness it's all gonna be there but i'm gonna play everything more straight and dramatically it's like there are like two different flips in this movie in terms of how she's subverting the audience's expectation of what status quo is in this film you know just in terms of tone it's also, a very bizarre movie also in terms of sex not just in the obvious like power dynamics of version yeah. ways but when we see Winslet's character naked she also you know pees uh sure and does. when in we slow motion on her feet <laughs> and when we see Kaitel and Winslet have sex it is a split second you see his ass uh as he's thrusting into her and I think it's something like She's uh, saying, don't like, come, don't, don't, come, come. don't come. Like, it's a comic yeah, moment. And he's coming. So, right. and, so then, and then that... don't they cut to an animal in the outback? Like, right after that? I think they do, yes. The, the uh, sequencing of shots, I remember being incredibly bizarre there. Uh, sorry, Kyle, uh, you were saying? No, so, I mean, it's like, you know, what you might want if this is being sold to you as a romance in the wake of Titanic, or even if you're sort of, like, titillated by the possibilities of these, you know, two good-looking people with great bodies. It's, it's not going to give you... Just that. It's going to uh, smuggle a whole lot of other things into those moments. Okay. Okay. So it's they're, they're kissing, right? Then oh, the cuts. kissing. Can we talk about that? Because the way she kisses her is kisses him is so weird and obviously was directed like it's almost like she's like a dog licking a face. It's so unusual, the well, makeup. And then later she has the scene where she teaches him how to kiss and perform cunnilingus yeah, step yes. by step, which is so bizarre. But just this shot sequence is, is them kissing for the first time, then hard cut to his tush thrusting for like three seconds as she says, don't come, and he comes, yeah. right? You like just see the two lines of like, her saying don't come and him going like Ugh, and then it cuts to an ostrich running at full speed <laughs> <laughs> which more movies ought to do it's you, know? always. you can't go wrong with an ostrich cut and the ostrich is like covered in like christmas tinsel or something uh yes right and then it's right they're following in the car with the antlers on it right right it is bizarre, but th- those things all happen within the span of like uh eight seconds and then it cuts back to the two of them naked in bed poiscodal this movie is what? <laughs> uh, this movie is very wild, um, and doesn't really doesn't really care to hold its audience's hand. I guess is no. the the best way to put that, right? Like these swerves that happen, you know that something's going to go down. But then there's like earlier scenes. Where like uh you know PJ uh, Yvonne gives PJ PJ is uh, Harvey Keitel a blowjob out of nowhere like you and know like when they when they tell her to, to see breathe. him to like bring her a change of clothes she's yes. having like a panic attack he's like talking her through breathing exercises and then he continues to tell her to breathe while she is is sucking on his penis isn't that when she reveals the drawer 
It's this, right the, after the, that. Yeah. Tape, it is tapings right of after like that. the different celebrities. That is such a weird detail. That's just got like a fucking collage with uh, fucking Lawrence Fishburne at the center of it. Sometimes she holds up magazines mid-sex. But to me, that sequence is very much of a piece with the themes that get revealed in the movie and maybe even a preview of them because... You know, even though he's telling her, breathe, breathe, and she's on her knees, you know, ostensibly servicing him, I watched that scene and her scene describing her fantasy being like, okay, this is a who who actually has the power and the agency in both of those sex scenes? Her. She knows exactly what she wants out mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, sex with uh, with the guy that she's with, and she goes straight to Kaitel knowing exactly what she wants out of that encounter too, you know? So it's always fascinating in both those scenes how the man reacts to a woman who has that agency, you know? Uh, the guy that she's hooking up with has no idea really, I don't think, about her active fantasy life. And Kaitel is just like, whatever, you know, this woman is throwing herself at me, but it's he thinks of that as getting what he wants. And it's really, to me, it's her getting what she wants. And so it's setting up, you know, the the sort of agency and, and what he's supposed to do with it that Winslet's character has after they start having their uh, sexual um, relationship. I also think if this movie is about anything, it's uh, about the fact that uh, human brains are fucking weird, right? Yeah. Like so much of this movie is about the idea of like brainwashing and deprogramming and people explaining their thoughts about how the brain works and how we process things and all of that. But also so much of it is just like, what, what why, why are, do our sexual attractions play out the way that they do? You know, like, I mean, you talk about another sort of expectation flip, but like piano is a movie where you would not believe at the 30 minute mark that you would accept her ending up with Harvey Keitel as a happy ending, right? That that will feel like a good emotional, healthy landing place for these characters. And yet you do. And then this movie, you're like, are, is she going to pull the shit with Keitel again? Is she going to make me think I should end up, she should end up with this woman? This woman should end up with Keitel, who seems like completely wrong with her. And instead, it's sort of just constantly interrogating this thing of like their shift in which one holds the power in their relationship, as you said, Kyle, right? Who is sort of more uh, intellectually in control versus who is more succumbing to their own libido? And then them trying to like constantly make sense of it after the fact about why they even want to fuck each other. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, there's a real power f- flip, you know, to to these the dynamics that we're talking about that is sort of crucial to it, right? Like to the sort of charge, uh, mm-hmm. which is why Kaitel is so well cast in both the piano and Holy Smoke, even when he's out of place, I guess. Because... Someone sort of getting power over him is pretty remarkable. Does that make sense? Like, you know, mm-hmm. that does actually land when that happens in, in, in either movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in yeah. the piano, same thing. Who has the power in those, in their arrangement, in their sexual scenes? Is it him? Is he setting the terms or is she? Is it a negotiation? Right. Is it fair? Are they turned on by a power imbalance? You know, these are things that obviously come up a lot in Campion's work, but... Um, but yeah, the way that they are presented here is very extreme, not even at, at a tasteful period movie way, but in a really in your face late nineties way. 
there's this scene at the beginning that really stuck with me where it's the guy, what's it, Stan, who's the guy who sort of helps them find Kaitel and organizes uh, the like. Yeah, the, the yeah. guy with glasses. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So his monologue, the end of his like big scene where he's sort of briefing them what they need to do. He says, the mind's a damn mystery. Why do people believe in God? Why do people believe they're in love? Why do I tell myself every day you're fat, mate? Today I'm not like going to eat cake, butter, or bread. And by lunchtime, I've done the lot. And then it's hard <laughs> cut to the waterbed and them coming up with the plan to tell her that the dad is dying. Which her, her dad is... I, her dad t- uh, taking the golf break immediately, by the way, is a great a great move by him. I love that. He, oh, he, he can barely commit to the I bit. Mean, and not to skip to the end, but the fact that just like in the final fucking letters, it's just like, yeah, of course, you know, as we all saw coming, he left uh, my mom for the secretary and my mom's here at the ashram now. <laughs> She's having a moment uh, early on in the movie. Yeah, yeah, so much of the movie is about there's these patriarchal systems and right. what are women supposed to do? How do they find their own agency within them? You know, I mean, whether it's, the mother paying more attention to what Kate Winslet is up to than what her husband is doing or, you know, religion and mysticism, period. You know, Keitel tells a story about, um, you know, the the guru who just basically wanted to fuck him. And certainly that's one of their fears with Kate Winslet. Uh, you know, like, okay, is she going to indulge in some mass marriage? Is he even cute? You know, sure. like these sorts of things. And how do you find your way when these systems and ideas and, and things that even feel so pure, religion, mysticism, et cetera, are really, you know, designed by men and often do have a component of just trying to kind of, you know, reassert a power structure where a man is on top and takes what he wants. Keitel is the war horse of this movie in the sense that everyone wants to fuck him, right? It's just like right. people cannot like, What's stop. Up? <laughs> right. And when you get to that guru I mean, scene where exotic. he's like, he takes my pecker out, he puts it in his hand, and he's upset that I don't come, and that's why we had a falling out. It's just like, right, you're right. There's this weird exotic draw to this guy, right? And just to, just for context, War Horse is a movie where that refer, uh, referencing where everyone yes. wants to fuck the horse. Everyone wants to fuck the horse, as we all okay. know. Just in case people hadn't listened to that episode. No, the thesis to, we established you know. on War Horse in our episode with the great pilot Virouette is that everyone wants to fuck this horse. That's the thing that Correct. keeps the horse okay. alive is people are like, why do I? There's something about, oh, I want to fuck it. That's what it is. <laughs> And it's the same with Kaitel's character in this movie. Where everyone comes into contact with him is like, "Can weird? Vi- oh, I think I want to touch his penis." Um, but but if I you think- described Harvey Keitel as a warhorse, I would just Absolutely. accept that unblinkingly. I also it think feels right. Lincoln Center could have for one night replaced the puppet with a naked Harvey Keitel on stage, <laughs> and the show would have worked. <laughs> oh I don't, my god! I don't know if it would have worked in the Spielberg would movie. be in paradise. <laughs> Yeah, I, I got I got a, a video of the Kaitel performance. Just FYI, if you want that, I, I, I had it going. Um, um, not to zoom out too much, okay. but sort of what you're talking about, Kyle. Right? I do think that one of the central things she's examining in this movie is that we uh, society has evolved to a point where we spend so much time intellectualizing why we do the things that we do, 
and trying to uh, strategize about what types of things we want to do, what type of person we want to be, uh, uh, how we want to be perceived, right? And someone like running off and joining a cult and submitting themselves to an unconventional sort of dogma is seen as the sort of thing where it's like, you don't do that. You're coloring outside of the lines. That's not like, uh, that's unseemly, you know? Uh, it, it, this is how you're supposed to live your life, these sorts of structures, these sorts of things, you know? Uh, having an open marriage and going to a, a spiritual retreat and all these sorts of things are seen as like, oh, are they going off, off the deep end a little bit? But like, the basic thing is, we still are, not to get too fucking like dormant philosophy about it, we're all just fucking stupid animals that have evolved to a point where we've come up with all these rules about how we behave and how we function, how we make sense of all of that. But like everything comes down to two basic impulses, which are procreation, self-preservation, right? By and large, almost everything you do is in one way or another based on one of those two things. And like these systems of power that are constructed ultimately often end up serving the people at the top of them in that way. And people look for answers in people, in systems, because when you stare down the barrel of like our consciousness that has evolved so far beyond what it probably should have, and we have too much internal thoughts, you're just like, it can't just be that I'm supposed to eat and find a cave to stay in and fuck people, right? There has to be more to it than that. And the more you try to sort of wind yourself up and finding other things, the less behavior maybe makes sense to you. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, I think she, the Kate Winslet character is sort of struggling with the idea of like, does she want to be told what to do? You know, I right. mean, she essentially is, a, even though she's rebelling against uh, her upbringing, it's no coincidence that she's becoming sort of part of this spiritual retreat where she's rebranded, but also part of another sort of um, mass of people who are all doing the same thing. When we see the suburbia, you know, the housing tract, absolutely everything looks exactly the same. But when she flips things on Harvey Keitel, who's also been telling her what to do and like, you know, uh, uh, has a, a sort of mode her. by which he lives by, and she's the one on top, and it's a cult of one and she's the leader, is that what she wants? She, I think primarily more than anything, she doesn't want to be her parents, right? She doesn't want to be your parents. She doesn't want to be your siblings. She's looking for a, a clear, alternative, distant path from that. The fact that Kaitel also had his own experience in a similar sort of religious group is so fascinating because he's sort of coming out of it going like, I went through this shit. I sort of humored the idea that this might be the answer and i realized these people are as full of shit as anyone else just come back to fucking normal society right um but yes she she flips it on him in a way he hasn't before and i think it's so telling there's a vulnerability to the moment when he's sort of saying like you know i like i used to be pretty like i used to be handsome and it's like she just slept with him she initiated it and yet he's still insecure about right. the fact that she doesn't find him attractive. Like, he's sort of acknowledging, you probably fucked me because of weird psychosexual power dynamics at play now and whatever sort of animal magnetism I have. But I want you to know, at one point I was conventionally handsome. You would have just slept with me because I was attractive. And she just immediately, like, laughs at him for that and mocks him for that. And he never recovers for the rest of the movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's whittling him down just in the way that he was trying to, you know, trying to break her down and confronting her with 
images and ideas and, you know, burning the sari and all of that. She's doing it in a much more compressed time frame and really hitting him where he lives, which is that sense of male sexuality and and privilege that comes along with it. And she dismantles it in front of him and then puts him in the dress. So he takes the, dress, the sari from the her. The he, she puts him in the dress. Uh-huh. The, the, the one on time the he really devastates her. I mean, he devastates her by showing her the film in a way, you know, like, you know, he makes her feel guilty. That's a little different. But when he writes be kind on her head, yeah, as is in my profile, as in my Zoom background, like that seems to be the one thing that really gets through her armor in a weird way where she's like, "Come on, man." Like you're saying I'm mean, like you know, like like for some reason that is the most sort of spiritually damaging thing she can hear, yeah, in a way. And it's also him expressing his vulnerability in the same way that she expresses it by like, you know, the, the, like she spells out help, he spells out be kind. Like they can't even say these things out loud. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there's a Jane Campion quote. She said, Ruth is beautiful and intelligent. She's also young. That was a real point of entry for the character. I believe youth tends to make people, it made me anyway, very dogmatic and very brave. Young people keep us honest. They're so intolerant of anything hypocritical. You hear it from kids all the time. The one thing they can't tolerate is hypocrisy, which also gives them problems with the contradictory or paradoxical nature of life. Anything that has a kind of overlapping or complex quality to it. So, like, that's the thing that's going to hit her the hardest is if he makes her question whether or not she is inherently kind because that is suddenly calling into question her own sense of, like, honesty, right? Yes, right. And which is what she's aspiring to more than anything, I guess. Right. This, I, I want to just be yeah. like fucking free of all this bullshit and live a more honest life. It's interesting, though, because even though she's so relatable and I think we're meant to sympathize with her, we do see her from Harvey Keitel's perspective throughout. In fact, the film essentially introduces her to us in the same way she might as well be introduced to Keitel's character because we meet her when she's already in line. We meet her through other people. We don't really get to know her for her until she's already had this enlightenment. So yeah. who was she before this? Who is she maybe underneath it? Mm-hmm. We find that out as he does, which is interesting. So the I, even I, the idea that maybe her spiritual quest is to be kind or it's something that she needs to work on is not something that we go into the movie knowing, you know, or, or feel even very strongly, I would say, in the first half hour. She's kind of unknowable throughout the entire movie. Now, that's partly like Griffin said, you know, that is partly just being in your 20s. You are sort of right. unknowable in, yeah. in a weird way. To like, yourself. But yeah, no, even. no. Yeah. She's, she's inscrutable. Um, I think, I mean, look, I really, I like this movie. I think it is you know a blast and so different but like it is worth you know noting that this movie went over like a fucking brick like the, nobody I mean, liked this movie look when this it came is out. Like, the kind of movie that i feel like i usually fucking reclaim per miniseries like your higher learnings or whatever where it's like this is the crazy tonally all over the place unwieldy mess that i'm gonna argue secretly fox and even for me i'm like this movie's a mess i like it i like it on balance but it is so fucking all over the place. It's really hard to get your head around. Kyle, where are you on this movie? Yeah. Well, I I, I liked revisiting it because kind of, um, uh, as we were saying earlier, so many people's campion introduction was the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just sort of take things chronologically, or at least I did. And so when Holy Smoke came up, 
I think there was a lot that I was interested in, but also just you just don't expect that from her. I didn't then. But uh, I think a few years later, I was dating a guy who really loved Sweetie and showed that to me. And that was such a skeleton key. Mm. And so right. it was fun to go back and revisit this, like knowing that she already had that vibe and those interests within her and that she likes things to be messy. I mean, I think, you know, I I like messy movies if they're done with some thoughtfulness. And I think the movie likes being messy. Even the very end of the movie where they're emailing each other about their lives, which are very settled, but also keeping a space for each other within those yes. specific mm-hmm. far-flung lives is a messy conclusion that sticks with you because it is messy that you know there is a certain yearning for one another who knows if they'll ever see each other again though and there's nothing open and shut about it it leaves in an open place but we really had something didn't we you know there's that sense of just like i mean the reveal of fucking like kytel with like the two-sided baby bjorn that he's now fathered twins with Pam Greer and he's just fucking got yeah, dad glasses on he's writing his second novel Pam Greer yeah. I want to give a whole little spotlight to in a second but uh I you know I first 40 minutes I was so locked in with this and as it went on I was just like is this movie totally losing the plot and then started to like uh, uh coalesce for me again towards the end and when you get to that moment of the her moving to the back of the pickup truck to sort of like console him, I was like, fuck, did this movie just wholly win me over again? Did it totally put a, a bow on it? And I was like ready for the movie. I was just assumed that was the last shot of the movie. And then when you put that email coda on there, I just felt once again unmoored. I do think yeah. it is a more interesting way to end the movie. I do agree with yeah, you that the messiness is for the point, but I was like once again just even in the final two minutes, completely thrown off from my expectations with this film. It's so interesting because Campion is so specific with her visual intentions and there's, and with honestly any intentions, her creative intentions too. But even watching something like Power of the Dog, which is very specific formally and structurally, my first time through that film, and I think a lot of people's first times through that film, you're kind of like, Where's this going? What is this all amounting to? I'm so curious. You know that she knows the true nature of the movie, but you're waiting, waiting, waiting for you to know the true nature of the movie. And you find it out. And the second time through was so fascinating for me because every single scene is leading towards that ending. And there's no wasted scene. It's all setting up everything that is about, that will eventually pay off. You just don't know that yet. So it is a very like, tight controlled screenplay in the way that it's written but it has the illusion of mess because the first time through you don't know that you know all you know is she knows it and that that can be a really alluring thing in a filmmaker where you know that they know but your own reaction to it or your own emotional takeaway is more complicated but i think kyle you just identified a thing i like about the movies I usually defend that are sort of the ambitious messes from the filmmakers we cover where it's just like they're doing something that feels so unwieldy and inscrutable, but they're doing it with a confidence and precision, whether or not it's yeah. it's pleasant, whether or not it goes down smoothly. I'm like, they know exactly what they're doing. I can dislike it or not, but they have not lost control of this. And I am just such a sucker for that 
clarity of vision, especially when the vision is directed at something that's kind of abstract, you know, uh, or messy, I guess. I personally think you need the coda because I like thinking I of this movie not as yeah. their, not as their like ultimate union, but as like a year later something they would both reflect on both fondly and sort of with bizarre like being like wow that is crazy that we did that like I, I totally you know like you know what I mean like right the distance is good to 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 include the distance but it's probably I I'm trying to think of us us triple f's kyle like mm. sitting down and seeing this at venice and walk you know being like holy shit like jane campion's new movie with kate winslet holy like, smoke and jane campion's walking, new movie holy, yeah. <laughs> and walking out and being like well i don't even know where to begin like you know not yeah. even maybe i i don't know how i would have reacted in 1990 but like certainly i would not have been able to walk out and been like i totally get what that was right, right. does for. this movie play like the paper boy you know right yes i mean yeah. sure in some ways have you guys done Lee Daniels yet? No, it's we've talked oh, about it a lot. that's going to be a series. Come I, on. Talk about, like, confident messiness. I, see, um, I kept that's waiting for him to make another movie. And then fucking Billie Holiday is kind of boring. Right. Right, which here's, was sort of underwhelming, yeah. But here's the thing. Also, the, the, the title of the movie, Holy Smoke, with an exclamation point. You know, she directs with an exclamation point, but the feeling you have as a viewer is a question mark. Right, you're like, holy you know? smoke. It might even holy be an ellipsis. Smoke. You might just be trailing off at the end of the exclamation. Yeah. But I also do love a movie that has an exclamation point in the title. Oh, you know, yeah. the informant had an exclamation point. Everybody Wants mm-hmm. Him had two exclamation points. It's passionate. Obviously inherited from the Van Halen song. I don't have we ever gotten three exclamation points in a title? Uh fuck. I feel like there has to be, and now I'm thinking of what it is. <laughs> it's Pat does have an exclamation point, right? Am I wrong about is that? Is there a question mark exclamation point? That is Oh, tier, it's called so. that's called an interrobang, of course. And I'm not uh-huh. sure. Uh let's see. I'm looking at some of these. Safety last, that's an early one. Viva Zapata, of course, Marlon mm-hmm. Brando nominated. Them, the classic movie with ants mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. oklahoma of course it classically comes with an exclamation point uh what else do we got faster pussycat kill kill mm-hmm. that has three uh but there spaced out there we go should have known same with torah 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 i, I just mm-hmm. owe everyone an apology the title of its pat does not contain any punctuation it's just that the poster is a giant question mark <laughs> a movie course, that right. has undoubtedly aged perfectly no. There, there's the funny uh, subcategory of like Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything! Exclamation point, Ju- mm-hmm. Julie Newmar, like where you have the exclamation point in the middle of the title. Uh, Stop or my mom will shoot mm-hmm. is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not seeing any triple. Like, someone's no, got to try neither. that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Pam Greer sidebar. Uh, Pam Greer came. She's up- in the movie for five minutes, maybe. Correct. Right. Correct. right. It's a brief performance. Probably less. I think yeah. less. Yeah. It's one scene, basically. Right. She she sings a tune, though. She does sing a tune. This is my thing. Pam Greer obviously recently came up in our Carpenter series, where she's in two of the late period Carpenter movies, right? Uh, one right before, one right after Jackie Brown, and we were sort of talking about why we didn't get to see the sort of post-Jackie Brown dramatic career that we wanted. Big comeback, big lead roles, all right. that. And I feel like people push back on two things I said, one of which was that she was kind of depressed to be back in genre land, which is, uh, I, I think, correct, because it, that is one of 
Pam Greer's skills is I don't think she ever condescended to material, right? And she always heightened material. And I think she likes working and whatever. Uh, but uh, you watch her show up in this and just her being in this context, you're like, fuck, I wish more directors were using her like this. I wish she had a bigger part in this, but I also wish she had more of a run of auteurs just stretching how Pam Greer could be used in a film. She's... Great casting in this. Yes. Uh, both in that she can come and kind of bitch out Harvey uh, Keitel for a minute. Mm-hmm. And you totally buy that he would be like, you know, uh, intimidated and sort of like want want to keep her. Right. And blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she's just sort of like similar kind of age and like, they, you know, they're from similar like times. Yeah, they both came up in the 70s mm-hmm. and all that. So that's great. But yeah, I just... I, I kind of wanted a whole movie of her yeah, but and Kaitel everything about having twins. I know. <laughs> like I just, it's it's such a dangling thread, and it's not like she ever worked with Campion again. Obviously, so like that's too bad too. They're a good energy match and yeah. a good pop culture. They are. Match. Um, and it's it's funny. I mean, basically. Every all the quotes are like Winslet's quotes about this are basically like, "I love this character. She's such a monster. Mm-hmm. She's great. She was even more over the top in the script, and I tried to make her feel more human. But like, I had such a blast watching it. Mm-hmm. And then Campion is just like, you know, being in love is psychotic. Like, yeah, I, like even if it's brief, and like, so that's what's so exciting about like this movie for her. I think is like, uh. Her her impression of Harvey Keitel's character is like he's incredibly straight laced, even though he's presenting himself as a cool cat, right? Sure. Like that's what the back half of the movie really is, and of course it ends up with him in the dress with the lipstick on, chasing after Winslet like a man, like a madman, right? Like he he's uh, here's the quote i'll read this line at least there's a cultural thing about the seduction of girls in their 20s i feel sad that men don't grow up with their own generation of women and learn to enjoy them and accept their aging so i guess like there is that sort of element of like a finger in the eye like a punishment for his character like that he goes down that road but like you know she's she's having fun with it well i mean you you made the fucking age gap joke at the beginning of uh the episode but this is like a movie that is actually somewhat interrogating age gaps and not like criticizing them but it's like what what are the weird power dynamics of this you know uh both in terms of how it plays out but also why that initial attraction exists in the first place um and again who has the power within those structures right if older men are creating structures that reinforce their power and give them access to younger women, what power within those structures do younger women wield? And how cognizant of that power are they? Right. It's like once they have sex, she kind of he kind of translates most of uh, transfers most of his power to her. Despite the fact that it seems like he is the one who is exerting even more control in that situation. He shouldn't have come. He shouldn't have come. She told him not to. No, she did warn him. <laughs> He didn't listen. This movie got mixed to bad reviews. Really? Um, In a year, of course, that's famous for all the fucking like 90s auteurs, like fucking victory lapping. And and also elder states. Right. People from previous decades as well. Yeah. So that's probably not part. Uh, that's not helping the no. fact that this movie is coming yeah. out in award season in a very packed award season mm-hmm. um i don't know 
you know, David Rooney, my uh, Your Film Critics Circle uh, colleague, Humble actually down. gave it a good review uh, in Venice in Variety. Like, he actually said, this is like Sweetie. This is a very challenging work. It's kind of a return to her early idiosyncratic style. So, like, mm. there were some people clicking into that. Sure. But... um. I think a lot of reviews, apart from sort of bafflement by like the pairing of the lead actors, were 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 sort of like this movie's not really about cult deprogramming. Like it's actually sort of just like a battle of the sexes. Like I think the pitch maybe had sure. gone over strangely as well. Right. But that's that's the entry point. It's about that the fucking that opening monologue I read. It's about how fucking weird human brains are. And and the idea of cult deprogramming, right? The idea of someone being quote unquote brainwashed and then needing to hire someone else to quote unquote reset their brain is a, a vehicle to open those doors and start like interrogating. As much as we think we we understand how you know our neural pathways or whatever, it's just like fucking chaos. But on that note of how it was received, have you guys seen the poster for this movie? <laughs> yes. It's a great You mean poster. the one, the tabloid on one? On yeah, its, it's, a, it's like a tabloid yeah. cover. And, right. yeah. But at the bottom of the poster, you know, the sort of bottom line of the tabloid cover, it says, has writer-director Jane Campion gone too far? And, wow, you know, I mean, that kind of like controversy hyping is what uh, Weinstein was very good at. But it is a good line to kind of think about how people responded to that film at it, that time it literally says like a scandalous new film it is very yeah. much trying to be like this is the movie that's going to press all your buttons like you won't believe it so yeah it is funny because sex captive other... in desert hideaway young beauty seduced by macho american twice her age we paid him thousands right. of stuns family experts question who really True. seduced who like that makes it sound like it's going to be fucking wild things or something well, but it might as well right. just say, like, naked Titanic beauty, pees right. all over herself, yeah. you know, screw 60-year-old <laughs> man, you know? Because it oh, is... Oh, I have to read... Right. I have to read the P quote, but no, sorry, finish, finish, Kyle. Sorry. No, no, no. I, no, read the P quote. I, I just want to say, before we move away from the poster, because the P quote is... I mean, look, this is what we've been building up to this entire episode. <laughs> right. I have a full bladder, so go ahead. It's also one of these posters where it's very striking, but you also look at it and you're like, what's the title of this movie? Like, because of the formatting yeah. and is doing it... Is it called it, Tabloid Times? Right. right. Yeah, what is this? Holy Smoke is uh, like... It does say Holy Smoke twice. Right. They're using that as, like, the fucking, like, quippy uh, daily news... New York Post, like, shocking headline. But the way it's formatted does not feel like that's the title of the movie. Anyway. Uh, uh, well, yeah, but quote. also, all other marketing of this film is, like, Kate Winslet standing in a desert, basically. Sure. Right? Like, it's more trying to make it seem like some sort of exotic movie about, you know, Kate it Winslet. It looks like Hideous Kinky. It's, like, nowhere. the exact same right. marketing yeah. campaign. In, yeah. like, with her midriff bear. Right. Right. Anyway, uh, the P quote is just that uh, the P scene was done, obviously, with a saline drip mm -hmm. attached to her, you know, uh, but she was like, I want to do one myself. And so she tried to pee herself. Uh, and as she says, and the problem is, of course, that the wee dribbles down one leg. She said she could just could not arrange it. So the pee was cinematic. She couldn't you know, get the just pee went down her leg. In yeah. Properly. Yeah, anyway. she, she couldn't. Um, yeah. She also apparently, after seeing the movie for the first time with her husband, Jim, uh, we were totally stunned for about 24 hours afterwards. It was almost like we had a terrible hangover that wouldn't go away. We were in sort of a daze. Oh my God, we've made a porn film. So she was quite <laughs> shocked by how explicit the movie is, even though it's not like explicit in some sort of like 
like kind of lurid porny way i would say but it is it's a very Im- intimate movie there's well, a lot of well, everything is raw yeah. it's also the the campion thing we talk about like sexuality in campion movies is far more vulnerable because it's unvarnished you know um right it is interesting that, i mean we're talking about she is an actress who uh is able to overpower in her performances a dodgy accent but i do think it's important as an actor i go to bat for the accent oh, no, i think no. it's good in I'm that same david I'm in that same david sense. rooney review that david is citing yeah it says that the accent is unimpeachable i i'm not uh, criticizing no. this accent and i'm just talking Australian. about the accent thing we we're saying in general but i more so just winding up to this point that I think it is important for all actors to like in your development as an actor, the moment when you can start to recognize what your weaknesses are, you know, and how to circumvent them and avoid them rather than thinking that you're an actor who can pull off fucking anything. And I think it was an important lesson that this early on in Kate Winslet's career, she recognized that she could not control her urine stream because you just see her never attempt that again for the rest of her, mm. her filmography. That's good. You know, she doesn't embarrass herself again. Anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I took let's a play the long box office game. Stupid joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we could do the limited weekend, which is December third, nineteen ninety nine. I guess we okay. should do that. We could also do it's wide weekend, but now nah, we don't need to do that. I think right. the wide weekend's um, my birthday weekend. Is that possible? It's February. Yes. Hey. Yeah. It's February. Uh, it, it took a while to go. I mean, and why sure. wide? I mean, like a hundred screens. It did not go wide. Wide. Uh, this movie opened on two theaters. Uh, in December, per screen average of $16,000 at number 61. Mm. Uh, also opening this weekend, Sweet and Lowdown and The End of the Affair. There's mm. a lot of Oscar movies yeah. coming out right now. There's that movie, Virtual Sexuality. That rings a bell. What's what that? What is that? Ah, uh, fuck. It was, like, it was like a British comedy about like it was sort of like a reverse weird science it's like woman makes a man in a computer program and then he like comes to life or whatever it's like oh you make the perfect man anyway i'm just looking at new but no number one movie griffin in december 1999 can you just tell me what it is a toy story 2 that's right the deuce baby (laughs) yeah in its third week (laughs) still number one i just figured you'd you'd know huge huge Um, humongous and number two is what was its box office rival it's an action film it's box office rival in 1999 they came out the same week right right in november Uh, fuck um is it is it like an established action star yeah uh established action franchise oh it's established action franchise in 1999 that is released in the fall or the winter against toy story 2 yeah so like thanksgiving weekend oh 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 it's uh uh it's bond it's tomorrow never dies uh it's the world is not enough okay sorry i get i'm confused it's fair enough it's the third brosnan movie the one with um denise richards and sophie marceau yes uh Number three at the box office is a R-rated fantasy action horror movie with a big star. Sleepy Hollow. Who's on the wane. No. No! Stars on the wane. Okay. His star is on the wane. Because uh, Sleepy Hollow, I know, comes out the same weekend as uh, World is Not Enough, which is why we've covered Sleepy Hollow this is weekend. number four. Okay. Star on the Wayne, weird horror action sci-fi. What were the genres you said? It's sort of horror action, you know, supernatural fantasy. Is it End of Days? 
It's end of days. Oh okay. man. Yeah. Yeah. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Uh which I've never seen. That's a Schwarzenegger I've never seen. I can either. Is that Peter Himes? It's Peter Himes, yeah. I've seen it. And um not great. Gabriel Byrne uh, is the devil, right? The number one yeah. thing I remember is Gabriel Byrne seducing a mother and daughter, and they have sex in this kind of like bass relief kind of way. That's yeah. the, it's sure. it's a weird visual uh scene. <laughs> weird threesome. Weird threesome to find in a Schwarzenegger movie. Mother daughter Gabriel Byrne. Kyle, I'm not saying I'm disappointed in you, but that is the kind of movie I would love to have someone tell me is secretly great. Oh, I, I, believe I don't you. doubt that you can find people who think that. I mean, like, listen, there's been this rash recently of people reevaluating movies or just happening upon them on TV from that era and being like, wow, this is gorgeous looking. And it was. Sure. And yeah, I don't doubt that compared to like most of the um, by committee shit that we see sure. in movies these days, it's just like stunningly gorgeous, but not a great movie, as I recall. I'm going to rewatch it now. Uh, number five is another one of those kinds of movies that we're talking about. It is a crime thriller. Uh, it's the kind of movie that would be a TV show that would last for two seasons now. Hmm. And it, uh, it was based on a book. An Oscar play. It was a programmer. Programmer based on a book, a uh, huge star and a up and coming female star. Hmm. Um, it's not the bone collector. It is the bone collector. It is the bone uh, collector. Oh, <laughs> I mean, the talk, bone collector. Talk about exactly what I'm saying, because yeah. wasn't Barry yep. Jenkins discovering bone collector on a plane recently, and it looks it's, so good, and everybody was like, "Yeah, it's gorgeous." Yeah, and movies these days just aren't. That's noise. It's yeah. it's Philip. It's a Philip Noyce film. Noyce. Uh, Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. You've also got. Queen Latifah, Michael Rooker, Luis Guzman, Ed O'Neill, Leland Orser in a film about a serial killer? Are you <laughs> sure? All those. Leland Orser's in this? Um, yeah, that's another wow. one where I'm like, I should, I should rewatch that. That probably rules. Like, um, yeah. Oh, it does rule. Well, Trust me. You know, Have ben, you seen Ben's it, Ben, or are you just yeah. saying that off the title? Oh, absolutely. I've seen it. The villain lives in like a fucking underground lair full of pipes. It's like extremely my shit. Isn't the villain Leland Orser? I mean, spoiler alert. But... Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, uh, I mean, Le- Leland Orser, again, a villain. I don't, I just don't see it. I think you must be mistaken. Uh, <laughs> it's just no way that would ever happen. In I a forgot movie. there was a Bone Collector TV show. Oh, God, was there? Well, Lincoln yeah, Rhyme, Colin Hunt for the Bone Collector. Was it like Dennis Haysbert? It was Russell Hornsby. Oh, okay. Russell was Hornsby. The Sun and Fences? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, because the idea is that he is uh, in a hospital bed, right? Like he's been right. paralyzed or something, right? Yes. And he's like doing everything from, yeah, yeah. That uh, is funny that he was that he was Denzel's son in Fences, and then he played fucking the bone He played Denzel. I, I right. think uh, I think yeah. Jovan Adepo was the son in Fences, right? Like, was yes. it isn't, Russell isn't he the older son? Is Am the, I wrong about that? He's the older son, uh, yes. right? Yeah, in right. Fences, right? That's right. Um, he's he's a good actor. Yeah. Um, no, this is a weird box office griffin in that it's the same top 10 as last week. There's nothing new. Really? 
Yeah, it's really weird. Like okay. the, everything new is just limited release stuff, yeah. and that's it. Every it's Toy Story Two, World Is Not Enough, End of Day, Sleepy Hollow, Bone Collector, Pokemon, Dogma, Being John Malkovich, The Insider, Anywhere But Here. That's your ten, <sighs> and those uh, were the ten last week. I I, I, mean, I yearn hearing the that variety. top ten that has the like variety John, of that Being ten. John Malkovich. Jesus, yeah. but look, oh. there there are yep. shitty movies on that ten, but it's it's a buffet. You know what I'm saying? Truly, there are buffet. options. <laughs> yeah. There are, there are, and all these movies are doing well. I mean, the yeah. Being John Malkovich made twenty two million dollars in nineteen ninety nine. Mm. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, it was, you know what, what? it was USA Films. It was like the focus, you know, pre focus. Yeah, you know what's a depressing thing to think about? That like twenty years ago, the narrative was like, oh, why can't Charlie Kaufman crack this twenty five million dollar domestic ceiling? Right. All now his it's movies like any movie. peter out at twenty five. <laughs> Now it's like uh, fucking House of Gucci crawls to fifty, and everyone's like giving it a standing, throwing roses right. at it, being like, "Good right. job, keeping right. grownups in theaters. That's great." House of Gucci would have made uh, like a hundred and sixty yeah. million dollars ten years ago, oh, or even yeah, three. Yeah, made Lincoln money, yeah, yeah, or yes. even a few. Yeah, absolutely, yes. right. Anyway, uh, anyway, everything's good. Everything's game. good. I'm trying to be less negative. 2022. Everything's good. Everyone's a good person. Ooh, I love this. Great. Wait, is this uh, the year of good, Griffin? Yeah, movies. The movies are safe. I think the outlook yes. is bright. Mm, I agree. That's right. It's the um, opposite of good grief. It's good griff. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag good griff and make some fan hashtag art of me as Charlie Brown. But I'm happy. <laughs> right. You've kicked the football. I yeah. Make this um, is the fan art I want. I've, I'm fucking kicking a field goal. <laughs> right. And all and a little Charlie going Brown like, shirt. Yay! Yeah, and right. they're like, "We respect you. We we recognize your worth." Um, that's You're great. A good man, uh, Griffin Nooms. Holy smoke is great, and yeah, you know, after this movie, you know, gets such a chill reception, she's like, "All right, all right, I'll do something normal. I'll do in the cut next. That won't freak <laughs> yeah. you out." Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why are you booing me? I'm right. Um, <laughs> yeah, she is. Kyle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Blank check exclamation point. Oh, we should we should change our fucking name. Yeah, we really <laughs> blank check. Blank check. Uh, Kyle, you're a legend. You're Thanks best. for being a festival friend. Long overdue. Thank you, Simsy. Uh, and yeah, and everyone should fucking read uh, your book because I mean it, it couldn't be more relevant to our listeners. Uh, yeah, listen, I'm biased, but it's really fun, juicy, it moves. And if you want to know how hard it is to make a movie, let alone a movie masterpiece, mm. this is, uh, this will tell you. <laughs> yeah, Breaking it yeah. down. Yep. Yeah, I've, I have seen uh, several people tweeting that they read it in one sitting. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. I, yeah. Truly, I, I do think, and that the response I keep getting, which is absolutely what I was going for, is that you read this movie thinking, oh, well, there's no way they'll make this. Or you read this book thinking, there's no way they'll make this movie. Just the odds are too stacked right. against them. Even though you know, you're probably reading the book because you've seen the movie a billion times. But, and then also, as we yeah. said, if they make this, it, it will be a disaster. Yeah. Like when, you, when you get to the shit of like, the movie is canceled because it rained too much for the first time in decades and now the land is too green, you're like, either sign from God, don't make this, or get over yourself. Find another way to make it. And the idea that he was like, no, I'm going to wait two more years. You're just like, doomed, doomed, doomed. Get over yourself, dude. Or give up. 
And then you're like, no, I was wrong. He made a he made a masterpiece. He made the best blockbuster the last 25 years. And as he was about to make it, he started having heart problems and had to go in the hospital for heart stents. Like truly a million signals that any other filmmaker would have just thought, okay, well, I'll pack it in. There must be something else I can do. And he never did. Yeah, just make my fucking penguin movies. <laughs> it's also just like it being the blank check off of Happy Feet 2. And, yeah. And, and their hope that he'd make three. You know, it's like, just fucking satiate him. Like, No, yeah, very <laughs> much so. I mean, yeah, you'll see in the movie, they would not have made Fury Road if the first um, Happy Feet hadn't done so well. It became yeah. a, a soup, like a, a real blank check situation. Yeah. Although arguably the second Happy Feet was not as successful because he had his attention split. But Happy Feet 2 secretly a masterpiece. <laughs> secretly a fun movie. Yes. I've watched um, it several times. Will, I wonder if he'll make Really? Yeah. I bought I bought the fucking 3D Blu-ray and I watch it a lot. Right. I think that movie's really fucking good. And I never um, rewatched the first Happy Feet. Is this this new one is it getting made the Furiosa, Furiosa? movie? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the intention. That, that's and definitely I, happening, right? I keep yeah. talking to them, and they're yeah. still doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you read the book, you'll understand that uh, delays like this are par for the course on Mad Max movies, or really most George Miller movies anyway. There's so right. much buy-in that needs to be happening, like literally buy-in in some cases. Right. They're not cheap. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all, you know, the intention is to go, and they have you know, a huge new star, Anya Taylor-Joy. They have Chris Hemsworth as the villain, who I heard was called Dr. Dementis. Love that oh, name. So oh, George Millery. Fuck that yes. sounds amazing. Right. And yeah. Tom, Tom uh, Burke and Tom replaced Burke, right? Yaya Abdul-Mateen second, right? <laughs> yeah, because you know those two are going up for the same roles. <laughs> it's exactly uh, the same vibe. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but uh, maybe did Yaya Abdul-Mateen just go like, you know what? I'm actually in too many movies. I actually need to take maybe. a break. Yeah. I don't know. But, don't but know. yeah, I mean, I'm excited for Furiosa for the obvious reasons, but also, you know, this is a screenplay that they've had written for god uh, well over a decade they were right. writing it right because at one point he was going to shoot these back to back right at one point it was going to be shot back to back at one point furiosa was going to be animated and they went pretty far down that path but then it honestly went too far while fury road kept getting pushed back so the timing just did not work out at one point there was going to be animated furiosa there was going to be real live fury road there was going to be like road shows theme park situations they pitched a whole transmedia um situation and of course at that time they barely got fury road made but now one of brothers is like oh actually we will do all the other things i would love to see like fucking monster truck rally style arena mad max shows they tried that with fast and furious and they pulled the plug on it like really fast but mad max it would translate much better um uh, Kyle, final question. Okay. And you can protect your sources here. I'm not asking <laughs> you to give us a scoop. I'm just asking if you hold the knowledge. Okay. Do you have a sense of what the fuck a thousand years of longing is? Oh. 10,000. Sorry, 3,000 years. 3,000. Three, three, 3,000 3, years. Sorry. Yes. Um, I believe the concept is that Idris Elba is a genie and yes. Tilda Swinton is this very shut down, repressed woman. And he tells her stories. And so it, it kind of touches on all sorts of 
locations and times and but it sounds um, like it's arabian nights like in structure and I it almost exclusively takes place like in one room right in a no, hotel room i think well i think they are i think they are in okay. it but the but the no stories. Um, okay the, it, it it definitely reaches outside of that hotel room um <sighs> yeah and that there might be interesting cameos in it um from some of miller's sure. other work mumbles <laughs> I, I don't Lorenzo's know. Lorenzo's oil? It's back. Cannot confirm that. The oil. So, but we'll see. They just hold Nick, up a Nick tincture Nolte of the oil. Back. Yeah, they just holding up the oil, going like, ah, my oil. I'm I Italian. Don't oil. you forget. They start vaping Lorenzo's oil. <laughs> yeah, right. 21st century. All Can't right. To say we're this. Done, um, okay, we're done. Hey. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and and many things. That's now a reductive way to refer to her at the end of the, these episodes. Marie Increasingly, Marie Barty uh, helping us make the show. Uh, Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can hear their new album, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Online, wherever you can hear albums. Thank you to Alex Barron, AJ McKeon for our editing. Go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. Uh, we got a website uh, coming uh, very soon. It should be launching around now where a lot of these links that I spend too much time saying at the end of each episode will be centralized. Right. So you're going to be able to go there for merch, for Reddit, for Discord, for all these sorts of things. They'll all be uh, sort of uh, organized in one place along with that is where March Madness voting will be happening very soon uh but of course remember you gotta go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we are still busting ghosts uh ghosts that are becoming increasingly uh more and more controversial uh and tune in next week for in the cut as we said a very normal movie that everyone took in stride (laughs) right uh and as always she's one of the finest actors of her generation but Kate Winslet does not know how to make her urine act.